Genesis. We're, we're studying the first chapters of Genesis, and we're looking for firsts. And this is the first here for me of broadcasting from my office. Um, I hope that you are able to hear and see me well in the sanctuary and on Blue Mountain TV and live streaming. But uh, yeah, here we go with a first. But we're looking in Genesis for firsts and foundational treasures that God's word has for us about who God is and powerful truths for living in his presence. Last week, we looked at Genesis 3, the fall. This Sabbath is what you could call the morning after. What was it like? Try to imagine. What was it like to wake up the morning after being banished from the garden? What was it like? Try to imagine it. There must have been a thousand if onlys. If only I hadn't spoken to the snake. If only I had prayed and been faithful to God. If only I had intervened and helped instead of participated. If only. All of us have those. The most tragic day in human history couldn't be relived. Neither can our if onlys. The only hope for Adam and Eve, the only hope for any of us is a promise of God. From the woman's seed, God promised, would come the Savior. And he would, he has, destroyed the power of Satan. And he has, he will, restore our relationship with our Creator. And he offers that to you. He offers that to me. He offers that to all of us this morning. Now, life outside the garden must have been hard. I mean, in comparison to paradise. God said it would be. There were misunderstandings. There were arguments that troubled the family. Work burdened them. There was struggle. There was sweat. There was toil, unending. Sometime later, we don't know how much later, Adam and Eve had their first child. Here's how it records it. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I've acquired a man from the Lord. Wow. Imagine it. The birth of their son. Of course, painful. But it must have been their single greatest joy since their disobedience and being removed from paradise. Look at Eve's exclamation of faith again. She said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Or as a new international version translates it, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Genesis 1 verse, I mean 4 verse 1. I, I kind of like the way a new commentary that I have, it's Seventh-day Adventist International Commentary, uh, a new commentary for the book of Genesis. It captures Eve's sentiment. This is what it says. Eve was so overwhelmed by the wonder of it that she believed that God had come down and had become the very one she had been given birth to. Imagine it. Imagine it. Remembering the promise that God had given at their fall, Eve must have been thinking that she had given birth to the Savior, the Redeemer. Now, if we assume that that's the case, and it, evidently it, it was so, we can look at her exclamation 
and understand it. And then think of the expectations that she had for this child. Think of her expectations of raising this child for she and Adam. And think of her disappointment. Think of it. Maybe the expectations were too high. Maybe Cain grew up never measuring up. Maybe Cain grew up nurturing grievances against his parents. I mean, they were the ones who failed. They were the ones whose mistake cost him and the family everything. His life could have been easy in the garden. Have you failed? Someone failed you? Is that failure plaguing you? Is it bringing you personal guilt or personal anger? Our, our lack, our apparent lack, our parents' failures can, can affect our attitudes. And those attitudes can infect us with inner pain and emotional scars. Peter, that's not his name, but it's a story I'm going to tell about my life. He was an elementary school teacher in our church school years ago, not here in College Place. We knew each other from Walla Walla College. That's back a wise ago. Walla Walla College days and this time as partners in ministry. One day, out of the blue, Peter confessed that he had harbored a grievance against me for words that someone told him I had said. Hmm. He said, he told me that day, every time he saw me, he was bothered. And that thought, that thought of the burden that he had carried, the animosity that he had brought with him all those years, this was many years later, it blew me away. I wish you could say that for every grievance I've ever caused someone, it was not something I had done like this story is. But the fact that he carried it for years. Now, I assured him that I had never felt such thoughts about him. And I had only good thoughts for him, and I always had, and I always have still. But aren't grievances powerful? They etch our attitude. They inflict inner pain, and they defile our lives. Now, Sometime later, we don't know how late, much later, but Adam and Eve had another son. This is what it says, Genesis chapter 4 and verse number 2. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, interesting to compare those two. When he's born, Eve says nothing. Not like she did about Cain's birth. And that vacancy, the fact that there's no words about him, is noteworthy. Abel was his name. And that's what it means. Nothing. It means vacancy. It means vapor, breath, emptiness, nothingness. He's only referred to in the Bible uh, in Genesis 4 as Cain's brother. He's not a man from the Lord like Cain was. And Abel never speaks. Not a word do we hear from his mouth. He seems almost absent. And maybe that's what he was in the family, absent. And their names reflect their differences. Cain, his name means to acquire. 
and it points to possession. He has acquired this, this name, this notoriety. He's a man-child from the Lord, the, the hope for the Redeemer. Abel, he's a vapor. It's the same word that the book of Ecclesiastes uses for vanity, like nothing, useless. And it is, here in Genesis 4, an ominous foreshadowing. Was Cain the favorite son and Abel sort of, well, ignored? We do know the two were completely different. Patriarchs and Prophets describes the dichotomy well. Here's what it says. Abel had a spirit of loyalty to God. He saw justice and mercy in the creator's dealings with the fallen race and gratefully accepted the hope of redemption. But Cain cherished feelings of rebellion and murmured against God because of the curse pronounced upon the earth and upon the human race for Adam's sin. He permitted his mind to run in the same channel that led to Satan's fall. Wow. Genesis 3 prophesied the battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And that battle is already showing its ugly head. Here's how one Bible scholar, Bruce Waltke, put it. Even though Adam and Eve are restored to God, they have two distinct seeds within the covenant home. Cain and Abel. They had the same opportunities. They had the same choices to make. Both were nurtured and loved, I'm sure, by God and surely by their parents. But Abel chose faith, obedience. And Cain chose unbelief, rebellion. Cain and Abel, those two classes of people populated the earth then and they populate the earth now. One says yes to God, yes to his forgiveness. One harbors resentment and says, I'm going to do it my way. And they feel no need of God's divine grace. It's interesting, that first act of worship recorded in the Bible, that first offering to God becomes the catalyst for the first criminal act between the first two brothers of the first family in history. Mean, ugly, immoral, oppressive. The story disturbs. The story frightens. Genesis 4, 2 to 4. Now Abel kept flocks, it says, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. So look at it. Cain brought produce. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. Going on. In the Genesis, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now the Bible doesn't record exactly why God favored one and not the other. But we can be sure that it wasn't because God plays favorites. 
God is not arbitrary. Instructions for offerings and, and, and the, uh, the sanctuary service are recorded later in Scripture. But we don't know what God's conversations were about such matters with Adam and Eve, with Cain and Abel. But we can be assured that there were. And he explained to them, I'm sure, this breach that their disobedience, their sin had created. He explained to them how the lamb typified God's forgiveness and brought and looked forward to reconciliation with him. God instructed, he must have, God instructed Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve, their sons, that this death, the death of a lamb, typified redemption and forgiveness. The death of the lamb pointed to God's intercession and his goal to cover sin. And look at the offerings too. Abel, it says, offered God the firstborn, the first the firstborn of his flock, before he knew there would be any more, he gave his first. And the best, it says he gave the fat portions, the best part. And all it says about Cain is that he brought, quote, some of the fruits. Interesting. Some of the fruits. Not the first fruits. Not the best fruits. At, at best, it was a, a casual token not, a, not an offering given from a grateful heart. And this expresses really a spirit of carelessness, a careless concern for the will of God. And Hebrews 11, which is the hall of fame for faith in the Bible, begins with Abel, interestingly. And it calls his sacrifice a more excellent one. Notice these words, Hebrews 11 and verse number four. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Abel offered to God the best of the best. His faith was ardent. His heart was earnest. Cain, he's arrogant. He's haughty. He's resentful. He's careless. He brings what was convenient. He brings what cost him little. Little in time. Little in effort. Little in expense. And God appeals to Cain, who's struggling with this, with this destructive attitude, as is evidenced by his offering. God, God appeals in Genesis 4, verse 7, if you do what's right, Will you not be accepted? Cain is struggling. He's struggling with resentment about his brother. He's struggling with resentment about God. He has a defiant attitude, an unrepentant spirit. He brings a sacrifice, but it's not one that can lay claim to atonement and God's saving grace. It's not one that celebrates forgiveness it's not one that rejoices in the reconciliation that comes through God's sacrifice. What about you, friend? What about you today? What does the time, the effort, the interest, the obedience that you offer God say about you? 
Cain's offering suggests an attitude of prideful arrogance and apathy. Like a father, God comes to Cain and he appeals to him. Genesis 4, 6, and 7. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. God loves us so much. He loves us so much that he can't let us be consumed by anger or riddled with guilt. He loves Cain so much that he wants him to know that he needs to deal with his destructive attitudes. And he says to him, you can be accepted, Cain. You can be accepted. There's mercy, there's grace, there's hope for you in God. If you do what's right. If you do what's right. God's kind but probing questions should have caused Cain to reflect on his out-of-control attitude and unreasonable thoughts. It had already robbed him of joy. His face, it says in Scripture, was downcast. It had already brought hatred to his home. It had already brought rebellion in his relationship with God. Sin was dictating his choices. Sin was dominating his life. It was a problem, not with his brother. It was a problem, not with God. It was a problem of his attitude. And it was crouching within him. Yesterday, I was rather amused by the end result of the story of actress Lori Longren and her husband who were sentenced yesterday to federal prison. You remember the story, how they fixed uh, their two daughters' admissions to USC with bribes and bogus athletic credentials. This famous actress and her fashion designer husband were two of the most prominent of many people who were part of this college admissions scandal. That, and you remember, the Justice Department uncovered it last year. At the sentencing, the judge chastised this high-profile couple. This is what he said. You have more money than you can possibly need, and yet you stand before me a convicted felon. And for what? For the inexplicable desire to have more. Think of that. The inexplicable desire to have more. This federal judge lamented that he's usually tasked with imposing punishment on drug dealers and gun runners from troubled backgrounds. But he told this couple, he told husband Gianni, he found it hard to believe that such a successful, such a savvy businessman that had such a, such a fantastic um, upbringing could stand before him sentenced to, for a federal crime. Think of that. He said to the husband, you're not stealing bread to feed your family. You have no excuse for your crime and that makes it all the more blameworthy. Wow. What makes us want more even when we have more than enough? What is it? What is it that makes us want more even when we have to commit crimes to have it? 
what is it? What is it? It's sin. And it's crouching at our door, at every one of our doors. It may be crouching at your door through an unforgiving spirit. It may be crouching at your door through pride. Or maybe it's anger. Or maybe it's lust or, or jealousy or selfishness or resentment or, or lying or something. It's, it's crouching. It's crouching at our door. Unforgiveness. Pride. God tells, appeals to us as he did to Cain. Confess. Confess it. Confess it to Jesus Christ. Ask him to cleanse you. Ask him to release you from this power that, that controls you through the blood of Jesus Christ. Ask him. If you don't, it will control you. It will dominate you. It will rise up and dominate your life and dictate the choices you make and the person you become and it will determine your eternal destiny and your reward. Sin is crouching. Thank God. Thank God he's built into us and into our human psyche a conscience that feels guilt about actions and attitudes are wrong. Thank God for that. God appeals to Cain with a voice and he appeals to you and me. Yes, sometimes through a voice, that voice of conscience, that voice of his spirit within us, kind of like the theft alarm of, that, that, that is set off with that ear-piercing siren, flashing lights and honking horn. God has built into us, each one of us, an alarm system to warn us of the unwarranted entry of sin into our lives. Without it, we'd be dominated by sin and defeated by it. One more word about Lori Loughlin and that whole ordeal. Interestingly, she and her husband, although they admitted to their crime, spent most of the time, 14 months as a matter of fact, insisting that they had done nothing wrong, nothing at all, and accusing others, even federal prosecutors, of misconduct. That's what they did most of the time. You know, possibly one of the most insidious aspects of our fallen, yours and mine, our fallen human natures is that we deny wrong. We refuse to be held accountable. We refuse to take responsibility for our sin. We, we refuse to accept blame and the consequences of our actions. And we refuse to be held accountable for what we do and what we say. When we do that, when we do that, we effectively burn the bridges of reconciliation. That's what happened for Cain. The first step, by the way, the only step to reconciliation is forgiveness by God. And a humble recognition of the problem, <laughs> our problem, and a repentant desire to do something about it, that's the first step. God gives us insight. He gives us will. He gives us power to do all that. But we've got to choose it. We've got to say yes to that. We've got to admit it. Here's how one Bible scholar, John Walton, put it. Distance from God is not just because we sin. It's because we enjoy sin. 
cherish sinful ways, even protect our right to sin and resist any attempts to harness our depravity. That's, that's me. That's us. Our world is fallen. Our ways are fallen. Sin, sin is pervasive and insidious in every way. And it controls what we do, what we think. And often we are, well, often we choose to be unaware of its presence. Most of us, most of us go about living not realizing that sin has not only stained us, but it's become a very part of the fabric of our lives. The only thing that can wash away our sin, wash away our guilt, is Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ. Cain turned a deaf ear to those alarms that went off that must have been blaring in his conscience. He chose to embrace resentment until it blossomed into murder. Genesis 4 verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. He killed him. What a shock that must have been. What a shock to Cain himself, to Cain in his anger, to Cain in his struggle with his own flesh and blood, his brother. Imagine it. To see his brother's crumpled form on the ground before his feet. You'd think, you'd think that Cain would have fallen to his knees. You'd think that Cain would have cried out, God, what have I done? God, what have I done? Help me. Forgive me. But he doesn't. He doesn't have anything to do with that. It says in verse number nine, then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Cain ignored the warnings. Cain resists confession. Cain refuses correction. Through Cain, through this story, we come to understand maybe more than ever the depravity of sin, the results of sin, the depth of our fall as human beings. As one Bible scholar put it, evil is not just the blood spilled. Evil is the self-absorbed human heart. That's your heart. That's my heart. And it impacts everything. It impacts our relationship with God. It impacts our relationship with family. It impacts our relationship with acquaintances. It impacts us. And it ultimately destroys us. Genesis, Genesis 4 is a story about Cain and Abel, but that's the secondary story, really. The primary story is a story about God. It's a story about God and his longing to save us, to heal us, to restore us. Cain's bitterness that was rooted in resentment grew into, into rebellion 
and resisted confession, refused correction. And in the end, it ravaged civilization. It rose up and defiled Cain, ruined his life, but not just Cain's life, his children's life, his grandchildren's life, his great-grandchildren's life. In fact, it defiled the whole world. When he was old, old man, don't you wonder, don't you wonder, when Cain's an old man dying without peace, without hope, without love, without happiness, without God, don't you think, did he wonder, was it worth it? God's word pleads with us. Hebrews 12, verse 15, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. That's the appeal for us today, friend. That's God's appeal to you. See to it, it appeals to us. See to it, it asks us. See to it by confessing. Confess the rebellion. Confess the resentment. Confess the the deep-seated issues that have caused it. Ask God. Ask God for cleansing this morning, now. That way was discovered. That way of hope and peace was discovered by Cain's civilization. It says, as the chapter concludes with this verse, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Yes, there were the descendants of Cain, but there were the descendants also of Seth, those who called on the name of the Lord. Your heavenly father has been waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting for you. He's waiting for me to call on him. He's wanting you to confess, to confess your rebellion, to confess your resentment, waiting for you to celebrate his joy, his love, his pleasure. He wants you. He wants you in relationship with him. He's asking you, to be in relationship with him today. Today, friend, don't make excuses. Don't rationalize your sin. Ask him to uproot your hard-heartedness. Invite him to control everything, including past hurts, present circumstances, and, and maybe injury or injustice. And future dreams and disappointments. Ask him. Follow the example of the psalmist who said to us, when I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That's what God will do for you and me. He forgives, he cleanses, he restores, he renews. And he's doing that for you today, friend. When you ask, That psalm, again, begins with this verse. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. That that blessed one can be you. That blessed one can be me today. Let's make it so as we pray together. Father in heaven, this morning, you've appealed to us through this story. We've seen in this story our own lives. It's the story of the human race, a story of resentment a story of bitterness, a story of hatred, a story of of sin. 
and all that it has unleashed. We ourselves find that sin in us. We all are infected. And you are calling out to us, inviting us to be restored, to be renewed day by day. Yeah, we fall, we fail. And it's not as though we do it once, we do it again and again. But Lord, you appeal to us again and again and again with your love in Jesus Christ. And this morning, this morning, we're saying yes to you. Come into our hearts, Lord. Cleanse us of our sin. Restore in us the joy of salvation. Lead us down a path of righteousness. May we be restoring our relationships in our family, in our workplace. May we be your agent of love and care and renewal and mercy today by your strength and power and in our lives until you return is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.